We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today, and I titled our sermon today, More Than a Carpenter. It's kind of based off of an old book by Josh McDowell, where he examined the claims of Christ. And in our passage today, Jesus' hometown people are discovering for the first time that he is more than the little boy that they thought that they knew that grew up in their midst. Um, He makes some astounding claims and says some things that get them to scratch their heads, and we're going to read about that today. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, this is what Luke records for us. He says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, and reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, and that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day in your midst. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown, just like those that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon, And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. It's interesting that in our text, as Jesus begins quoting the Isaiah passage that we have a very clear reference to the Trinity that we look right over again. We've seen some other references to the Trinity, but here he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, upon me, the Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And so here in this passage, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, that's something that people often are looking for in Scripture and wondering where it is, but we see it embedded in the text in so many different places. I wanted to give you some background and introduction before we dive into our text today, but one thing that I wanted you to know and something I included in the study guide that you can delve into for further reading is that John chapter 1, beginning at about verse 19 all the way to John chapter 4, verse 45, tells us of events that occurred prior to our passage, and yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record these events. 
So if you want to know about some of the things that Jesus did by way of ministry and activity, read John chapter 1, beginning verse 19, all the way through chapter 4, verse 45, and it kind of gives you a background and a context that leads into what Luke is telling us about. The spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism that we read about and heard about back in chapter 3, that filled him as he went away from the Jordan River after he was baptized by John, that led him into the wilderness for 40 days, is now the same spirit that empowers him as he goes to Galilee to do teaching. And Luke is portraying for us that really Jesus does nothing apart from the indwelling and powering of the Holy Spirit. Luke wants to present Jesus as the ultimate example of a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-empowered human being. Jesus models what is possible for each one of us as Christians through the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's an encouraging example and model for us. By way of background and introduction, Galilee, uh, many of you know, is about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And the region of Galilee at that time stretched about 50 miles from north to south and about 25 miles from east to west. It was this big area. And the name Galilee actually comes from a Hebrew word that means circle. And it derived its name from the fact that it was encircled by a bunch of non-Jewish communities that were located around it. So Galilee in Hebrew means circle and from the fact that it was encircled by non-Jewish nations. And because of this, new influences were always playing a part in shaping the culture of Galilee. It definitely was one of the most forward-looking and least conservative parts of Palestine, which is not something we typically think. We kind of think of Galilee and Nazareth as kind of this podunk backwoods area that Jesus grew up in, but it was very forward-thinking and, and not really conservative part of Palestine. Additionally, uh, the, the population was very congested. The Jewish historian Josephus was at one time the governor over Galilee. And he recorded that it had 204 villages or towns, none with a population less than 15,000. And so it's very pop, uh, possible, very possible that this area of Galilee had or contained about 3 million people at the time of Jesus. That's a lot of people in, in a relatively small area. And verse 16 of our text tells us that Jesus visited Nazareth in Galilee, his hometown. And even Nazareth wasn't a village as much as it was a city. The Greek word is polis, and polis means town or city. So Nazareth was actually considered a town or a city rather than a village. And historians tell us that from the hilltops of Nazareth, it was possible to see a very significant part of Israel's history that would stretch out before your very eyes. There was the plain of Esdralon where Deborah and Barak had fought back in the Old Testament, where Gideon had won his victories, where Saul had crashed to disaster, and where Josiah had been killed on the battlefield. There was Nevas Vineyard and the place where Jehu slaughtered Jezebel. There was Shunem, uh, where Elisha had lived, and, and as well as Carmel, where Elijah had fought his epic battle with the prophets of Baal. And besides all this, there were a number of great roads that skirted 
uh, Nazareth. There was the road from the south that carried pilgrims to Jerusalem. There was the great way of the sea that led continual caravans from Egypt to Damascus. And there was the great road uh, to the east that was constantly bearing caravans from Arabia, as well as Roman legions marching out to the uh, eastern frontiers of the empire. And I give you all of this information simply to underscore and highlight the fact that Jesus was not raised in some backwater hick town. He was raised in a very vibrant, thriving area. Um, an area rich with history and with literally the traffic of the world at its very doors. And that, that even before my reading this week, that was not my perception of Nazareth. Um, but that was the case in Jesus' time. Verse 16 informs us that one of the very first things that Jesus did is he went to the synagogue to teach. And I did some research on the synagogues this week and found that, that they were really the, the center of real life in Palestine. There was only one temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and that's where all the sacrifices took place. But the local synagogue was where all the teaching and the worship took place. And the law stipulated that wherever there were ten, at least ten Jewish families, there had to be a synagogue. And so there were literally synagogues in every town, every village uh, in the Galilee area there, uh, where people would gather for worship and for teaching. And the synagogue service had three main parts, which I found interesting. The first part was the worship part, in which uh, a prayer was offered, and a typical synagogue service, uh, service opened with an invocational prayer, a prayer that would invite God's presence and God's blessing over his people. And the recitation of a traditional Hebrew confession of faith. And that confession of faith and that invocational prayer were based upon two passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. And I want to read those for you because they're not really long. And they give you an idea of scripture that we have today that was used to open every synagogue service. The first was from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 9. And that reads... Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Kind of like what Catherine was just talking about with that memory verse. The other is from Deuteronomy 11, beginning in verse 13. And it says, And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul, that he will give the rain for your land. In its season, in the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain on the ground, 
and it will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land that the Lord has given to you. So this was how every synagogue service opened, with this invocational prayer that would invite God's blessing in his hand and his presence over his people, and it stipulated how Israel was to keep the Lord their God first and a priority, and how they were to impress this upon their children and their family, and post it in the house, and constantly have it on their hand or on their forehead to be in the center of their, of their focus. The second part of the service was the reading of Scripture. And usually there were about seven people from the congregation that would read. And they read, uh, as they read, the ancient Hebrew, which really wasn't uh, well known anymore, was translated into Aramaic or to Greek. And then the third part was the teaching part. And there wasn't a professional minister who would do the teaching part. And so the president of the synagogue would invite any distinguished person present to speak, and then discussion would follow. And this is how Jesus received the opportunity to speak on this occasion. When Jesus began his public ministry, he was recognized as a powerful and a dynamic speaker. And so when he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, it was natural for him to teach in the local synagogue. Verse 20 says that uh, Jesus sat down after he read from the passage in Isaiah, and it gives us the impression that he was finished, but actually in the culture, he was just beginning. And I found out that it was uh, the custom of the person to stand while they were reading the scriptures, but then to sit while they were explaining the portion that they had read, because Sitting was the posture for teaching, and it communicated authority. And that's, that's a helpful thing to know because that's what it means, all of the different parts of Scripture where we read about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in authority and in power. And that's uh, what they tried to represent in their teaching is that they weren't standing arguing a point, but they were seated and in, in very... Uh, confident and authoritative in their presentation of what they had talked about. Well, the portion of Scripture that Jesus read, as many of us know, it's from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And it was considered a messianic passage, meaning that it spoke of the Messiah, the Savior, who God had promised that would come and fulfill all that was prophesied about him. And Jesus concluded his reading with the words, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your very presence or in your hearing. And the implication was clear that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah that the passage spoke about. <clears throat> kind of a powerful thing. He was declaring or promising to bring about the, the kingdom that had been uh, prophesied about that they had been waiting for for so long. And that's why the passage says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue of the crowd were intently fixed upon him, riveted upon him. When Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he applied this to himself because this is exactly what had just taken place in the last chapter, chapter 3 at his baptism. Remember, the text says that the Holy Spirit came and descended upon him in bodily form. And really, that was the Holy Spirit symbolizing God's uh, anointing of Jesus for ministry. Ordinarily, prophets and priests and kings, as we read in the Old Testament, were anointed with olive oil for the purpose of ministry. 
And the olive oil represented or symbolized the Holy Spirit. But here in our passage, we see that the Holy Spirit Himself is the very oil that descends upon Jesus and anoints Him and and affirms and declares Him uh, fit and approved for public ministry by the Lord. As Jesus says that He is bringing good news to the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The year of Jubilee, which was the year in which all debts were canceled and all slaves were freed. A very joyful year indeed. Well, I said uh, in, the, in the email that went out this week that kind of promoted our, our passage today, and it's on your outline there, that in my opinion, many arguments and disagreements that we witness today in our world, and in our, in our churches, wherever the, the context usually result over the application of truth rather than truth itself. It's not so much that people in our day and age disagree over facts or information, but where they often part ways and become argumentative is in the application of those facts, in the interpretation, in how people respond to that and act things out. And I think that's true in our passage today. And I believe that our passage teaches us at least three different types of application. And the first I want to suggest to you, point number one, is the application of truth. Our passage speaks today about the application of truth. It's interesting in our text how the conversation of the people goes from verse 22 where they say, how can this be? How can this be that this guy that grew up in our midst we knew him as a boy. We know his parents. We, we knew everything about him. How can it be that he's claiming to be the Messiah? And as Jesus continues to talk and to preach, the conversation seems to go from how can this be to this can't be. And it's interesting how quickly truth can go from how can this be, how is this possible, to this is impossible, this can't be, because of the application of truth. Augustine once said about the people who came to hear him preach, he said, they love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate it when it accuses them. They love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate it when it accuses them. Truth is wonderful when it's stimulating and enlightening. It's offensive when it's convicting and challenging, when it, when it makes us uncomfortable, when it seems to demand something of us. Truth is wonderful when it's directed or aimed at someone else. Our Friday morning men's Bible study, we we study the Bible. We're going through a leadership material right now, leadership book, and there's a lot of conversations about our life that take place too, and uh, a, a continual joke that Al Bruckner always tells us about is that growing up in his family, every time they would leave church, he and his brothers, he has two other brothers, would say to each other, Man, that sermon was so for you today. You know, the pastor was talking right to you. Man, you know, as if, you know, the sermon never really applied to them. It was, it was for the brother, the wayward brother who needed to be set straight, you know. And, and usually that seems to be how we handle convicting messages. Like, man, that was so for my husband. Man, he needs to hear that. I hope he, hope he was taking notes. Or, man, my kids really need to apply that. But how... Infrequently, we say, man, 
That, that hit me. The Holy Spirit was nailing me as Pastor Bob spoke. That, that really applied to me. We love truth when it applies to someone else, not so much when it's for us. And so at first, the people marveled at the way that Jesus taught, but it didn't take long for their admiration to turn into hatred. And why? Because Jesus reminded them of the different times in the Bible where God had showered his blessings upon the Gentiles. The prophet Elijah bypassed all of the Jewish widows in Israel to help a Gentile widow in Sidon in 1 Kings chapter 17. And likewise, his successor, Elijah, healed a Gentile leper from Syria to the exclusion of all the Jewish lepers. Read about that in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so the people were essentially saying, if you're the Messiah, how can it be that you are talking about Gentiles in the same sentence or breath as God's chosen, as God's elect? How can you begin to possibly suggest that Gentiles share in the same blessings that are designed and meant for God's people? They're seeing a very narrow view of God's grace and God's mercy and God's purpose. And the question that this made me think today by way of application, today's sermon has got application woven throughout it. It's not like we're getting to the end and then applying application. I hope that you're hearing the application all the way through. But the application question that hit me this week is, are you and I willing to follow truth wherever it leads? Are you and I willing to follow truth wherever it leads? Or do we follow truth to a point until it demands something of us, until it becomes uncomfortable, until it calls for a sacrifice, or until it inconveniences us, or until it gets messy? How far do we follow truth? Do we search it all the way out and see what God is doing through his truth, or do we follow it to a point and then abandon it? We've heard many times that popular saying, um, when, when someone says something, oftentimes we dismiss it by saying, well, consider the source. You know, this person's uneducated, they don't know what they're talking about, or this person's constantly shooting off their mouth, or, you know, and so many times we dismiss truth by saying, well, consider the source, as if to discredit the truth by discrediting the source. But Scripture really speaks about the, the principle of consider the truth. Forget about the source, source, consider the truth. And one of the prime examples of that in the Old Testament is that God spoke through a donkey to someone. And it wasn't possible to, to dismiss what God said or to put it aside by going, well, this is, a, this is an animal. I'm not going to listen to this. Because God was speaking through the animal. And I think Scripture lifts up time and time again, that it doesn't matter where the source of truth comes from. If it's truth, we need to listen to it, and we need to search it out, we need to follow it, we need to apply. Are we willing to follow truth wherever it leads? The second application that I see in our passage is the application of reason. The application of reason. The dictionary defines reason as a basis or a cause for belief or action. 
a basis or a cause for belief or action. And I, I believe the application of reason is belief. The whole reason why we rationally process information and facts is to come to a point of belief or a point of action. That's the whole point. Not to remain in a suspended state of disbelief or of um, indecision. Truth should prompt action and belief. If something is true, it demands a response. The people were amazed at Jesus' gracious words. Literally in the text, it's his words of grace. But they immediately began to question his authority. How can this be that this carpenter's son is saying these things? How can he bring about what we believe only the Messiah could bring about? And so we like what he's saying. We don't argue that what he's saying is true, but we argue about the application of the truth because how can he be the messenger that's going to make it happen? Jesus' fellow townspeople can't figure out how such marvelous words can be coming out of the mouth of someone they believe to be the biological son of one of their acquaintances. You know, they believe him to be the son, biological son of Joseph. So how can it be that he's saying things? And yet, not a single one of them can deny the truth and the beauty of what he's saying. They're, they're bearing witness to it. They're agreeing that it's powerful, that it's true, that it's accurate. But they're, they're disagreeing and having, taking issue with the application. Years ago, uh, C.S. Lewis made popular the argument that later the, Josh McDowell in his book, More Than a Carpenter, kind of took up again, that there's really only three options for who Jesus was. Either Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's basically what the book More Than a Carpenter examines, and C.S. Lewis was the, the first person to bring that up. Either Jesus was a liar, he was an imposter, he claimed to be somebody that he wasn't, and he knew he wasn't the Messiah, but he went about uh, trying to fulfill all of these different prophecies about who the Messiah was and get people to believe that's who he was. The flaw in that is that many of those prophecies you have no control over, like where you're going to be born, you know, how you're going to die, you know, a number of different things that it was ridiculous to think that Jesus could have, could have done that. Well, secondly, well, if he wasn't a liar, then maybe he was a lunatic. Maybe he truly thought he was the Messiah, but he was just delusional. He was misguided. He wasn't healthy, you know? And, but he had the best of intentions, but he just was deranged, and he wasn't the You know, either that or he was exactly who he said he was. He was God in human flesh. The second person of the Trinity come to live in our very midst. But there really are no other options. Either Jesus was a liar, he was crazy, or he was exactly who he said he was. And so, as we apply reason to the facts, hopefully those facts should lead us to a point of belief. Because Scripture says it's not okay to just remain indifferent. The worst thing you can do is read Scripture and be indifferent to it. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's good for other people, not for me. You know, if reading truth... God's living word doesn't inspire us to believe and doesn't call us to action, then something's wrong. 
we're not healthy. Rational, logical reasoning should lead us from truth to belief, from truth to action. It's one of the reasons why we here at CBC started our Restore Healing service. As leaders, we were confronted by the fact that we really can't find a verse or a passage that says that, or that teaches that God doesn't heal anymore or that healing isn't something that we should continue to seek. There's really not a definitive, and people argue over that, and I can give you my arguments, but as leaders, we were convinced that God is still able to heal today. And so if we believe that, why aren't we practicing it, you know? And that's, that's one reason why we do this once a month, because we earnestly believe that God still heals. We don't pretend to know when and how. It's not a name it and claim it type thing. But God still has the power to do that. And nowhere in Scripture do I believe it says that God's done doing that. And so that's one reason why we were forced to practice what we preach. Well, the third application that I see at work in our passage is the application of grace. The application of grace, and this is huge. Though Jesus proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord, the same favor wasn't extended to him. He wasn't even welcome in his own hometown. You ask why? Well, Jesus basically sums it up by saying a prophet has no honor in his hometown. It's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Because people think they know you, they have you labeled, they, they can't think of you outside of the box. And as Christ followers, this passage and really all of Scripture teaches us that we should constantly be extending grace to one another. Continually extending grace to one another. Because grace communicates that we don't always have all of the facts. Grace communicates that we don't always see the full picture. That we don't always have and know all of the circumstances and events that feed into something. And because of this, we err on the side of grace, not judgment. And yet, so often we err on the side of judgment. I had a, a professor, a history professor in seminary, who got my attention one day when he said, he said, we often hold others to the highest and strictest of standards while extending the utmost of grace to ourselves. And he says that's exactly opposite. We need to hold ourselves to the highest of personal standards while extending the utmost of grace to others. But so often we, we, we do it the opposite. And it's exactly what the Pharisees did, you know. They held other people to the letter of the law, but they had a lot of allowances and grace for themselves. The question that came up for me this week is, who is deserving of grace? If you had to answer that, who, who is deserving of grace? Is anyone deserving of grace? Someone once said, you know, when you pray, pray for mercy. Don't pray for justice. Don't pray for what you deserve. You know, who of us is really deserving of grace? And, and besides that, grace was never meant to be selective. If, if grace is an application that's applied to a work of art, it was never meant to be applied narrowly. It was meant to be applied with broad strokes of the brush. Generously lavishly. That's the nature of grace. 
And yet so often we apply it thinly and sparingly. For God so loved the world that despite ethnicity, skin color, gender, social status, economic rank, political persuasion, denominational affiliation, or theological view, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God and whoever affirms what He did at the cross to pay for our sin will no longer perish, but will enjoy eternal life. None of the other stuff matters when it comes down to it. The key thing is whether we believe that Jesus is who He said He was and that His death pays the price for our sin and that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's the gospel message. The application of grace. You know, we so often argue about who's qualified to be in this race we call, we call the Christian life. And, and the truth is, is that without grace, none of us would be in the race in the first place. We, we couldn't even be allowed the privilege of competing in the race called the Christian life apart from grace. No one's qualified. No one's worthy. And so we need to apply grace. I love the end of our passage. It says, when they heard this, when Jesus took truth and applied it in a way they didn't like, the people of the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. And they intended to push him off over the cliff and kill him. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. That is one of the coolest parts of Scripture that, you know, it's like Jesus just walks, and he's looking at him. You know, who, who's going to push me? Talk about authority, you know. The passage started by saying that he, he went all these places in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's that same power of the Holy Spirit that had him continue on his mission. Like, you really think you're going to end my life prematurely? God's got a plan for me. I'm the Messiah. You're not going to touch me. And it, it's not as if he just disappeared. Because the text says he passed through their very midst. They witnessed him walking right through them. And it's like they just froze in fear. Like, I'm not touching him. You know, that was, that was the power and the authority that he held. He just kept on going. And again, he demonstrates what it means to be spirit-empowered and spirit-led. True authority. I'm going to quickly close today with, with a few questions. The first question is, have you examined the claims of Jesus? Maybe you come here every week and, and you faithfully attend church and you do your best to follow the Lord and to seek community, but have you ever personally examined the claims of Jesus? Do you know what those claims are? Have you wrestled with the truth of who he is, who he claims to be? Many people today will say, well, Jesus, Jesus never claimed to be this or to do that. Like, are you kidding me? Have you read the Bible? Or are you just parroting what you heard someone else say? Have you examined it personally? And where has it led you? Where has it led you? What is your response? Because again, indifference is not an option. Inaction is not an option. You can't read the living Word of God and not do anything about it. Remain complacent. If you can, then something is very unhealthy because it demands a response. Let's pray.